Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Laugh Again. In this series, we're studying the book of Philippians, looking for ways our lives can be different. This week, lead pastor David Fossil has us looking at what to do when it doesn't make sense to smile. He points out that there may be times in life when you get kicked in the gut, but God gives you the ability to smile. Join us as Pastor Dave shows us some ways to have joy in spite of what's happening to us. Find yourself laughing in situations or in places you know you shouldn't be laughing? Remember as a kid getting giggles at church or maybe you get you start laughing at a meeting or, or you, you see someone that trips and falls and they got hurt and you know they're hurting but the way they trip makes you laugh and you know you shouldn't be doing it. Um, there are times when you, when you giggle and you laugh at times when aren't really appropriate, which is exactly what happened to this guy on screen. I, I realize you couldn't see many of the words. Let me tell you real quickly the scenario. It's actually quite a big scandal in Holland a couple years ago. His name was Eric uh, Hartman. He was basically the Phil, uh, the, the Dr. Phil of, of Holland, and he had a daytime show, and every day he would have um, uh, you know guests, and they would have topics. On this particular day, he had an entire panel of people that were there with one common thing. They were all suing for medical malpractice. They'd all gone into surgery and something had gone wrong. And then they, they had come onto the show and were talking about what went wrong. Typically, Mr. Hartman, for his show Boomerang, would meet with the guests beforehand on this particular day, in this particular uh, time. He wasn't able to meet the guests. So when he sat down, the first person he talked to was the guy with the curly hair. And he went into surgery uh, to get his tonsils removed. The problem is that the doctor messed up his vocal cords. And, and he, he suddenly started talking like this, like he was this sweet helium. And he always had a high voice. And Hartman didn't realize it. And so he would, he would tell, he'd start talking to him. And, and then Hartman would start laughing. It's really not appropriate. I really shouldn't be laughing at me. And he just lost it to the point that Hartman and his entire crew was fired and the show was canceled within one week because he caught himself laughing and he couldn't help it. That's the lesson that Paul wants to teach you today. The world will tell you there are times in life when you get kicked in the teeth when you're not supposed to smile. You're not supposed to laugh. You're not supposed to experience joy. And Paul would say, with one exception... The exception is Jesus Christ. When you have Jesus in your life, even when you've been kicked in the gut, God gives you the ability to smile. God gives you the ability to experience joy. If you have your Bibles, I want you to uh, turn to Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1178. Well, uh, this is especially the kind of series you want to bring your own Bible to so you can highlight and underline and put notes in there. We are uh, the series is basically going through the entire book of Philippians. And uh, today we're going to talk about you see it on your study guide there when it doesn't make sense to smile. And the Apostle Paul in verse 12 and following starts off by referring to three different circumstances or times when people say you're not supposed to smile. They say you're not supposed to be able to enjoy life. And, and Paul says, yeah, I know that that's what the world says, but I'm telling you, it is possible to experience joy even when the world says it doesn't make sense. The first example he gives is you can experience joy in spite of unpleasant circumstances. 
And right in verse 12, he starts out and he says this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. A lot of times when I'm talking about suffering and problems, I, I, I feel a little bit fake because so far in my life, things have gone pretty well. I haven't lost loved ones in my immediate family. And, you know, I haven't had any major health concerns. And, and some of you sitting out there may go, how can he identify with what I'm going through? Well, I may not be able to identify, but I guarantee you, Paul can. He says, what has happened to me and what has happened to me is actually disastrous. He was falsely imprisoned in Jerusalem. Um, he was held up in the courts illegally. He was stripped and beaten multiple times. Then they decided to send him off to Rome. While he was on his way to Rome, he was shipwrecked onto an island. While he was shipwrecked onto an island, he was bitten by a poisonous snake. He survived, eventually ended up in Rome, exactly where he wanted to go, to preach the gospel. Except he wasn't in a synagogue preaching. He wasn't in the church preaching. He wasn't on the street corner in the plaza preaching. No, he was locked up in prison for two years, forgotten, waiting for trial. My guess is that no one can identify with what he went through. I think he gets the trump card here. And here's what Paul's saying. I know it doesn't make sense. I know the world will say that, that you're not supposed to be able to smile in these kind of circumstances. But I'm telling you, with Jesus Christ in your life, you can experience joy in spite of unpleasant circumstances. The second thing he says is you can experience joy in spite of unbearable people. In spite of unbearable people, verse 15 and 17, I've combined them for you to give you the scenario. He says, some preach Christ out of envy or rivalry. Right away, that should be a red flag that something not very good is happening. They preach Christ out of selfish ambition, so their motives are off. Not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. You would imagine, you would think that um, when the Apostle Paul ends up in prison... In Rome, all the Christians in Rome would bend over backwards and bring him casseroles and send him encouraging emails and drop by the prison to see him and, and spend some time with them. That's what you would imagine. And, and Paul says, uh, no, not really. That's not what happened. We just got done finish, finishing our series on vampires, people that suck the life out of us. And in verses 15 and 17, Paul would say, I have vampires in my life. What has happened is this. Not only are Christians not coming to encourage him, but the leaders of the Christian church, people who preach the pastors they're jealous of paul because he gets more people to come listen to him he, his books are selling better they're jealous and then they preach out of selfish ambition they're not about the city of rome hearing about jesus they're about their own particular ministry growing and they're doing it to stir up trouble for me to mess with me instead of licking his wounds instead of whining paul says you know what even if you have unbearable people in your life, you can smile. A while back, there was a book written by someone called Dr. Meyer. It was entitled, Don't Let Jerks Get the Best of You. That's what Paul is saying in verse 15 and 17. Don't let jerks get the best of you. They're at work. Sometimes they're at home. They're at school. They're at church. They're on the road. They're in the supermarket. Don't let jerks get the best of you. In spite of un unpleasant circumstances, in spite of unbearable people, you can smile. And he adds one more thing. In spite of an uncertain future, you can smile. 
Uh, I've told you um, that one of the things you might think about doing is uh, pick your favorite verse in each of the chapters. This verse in verse 20 is, is one of those verses, one of the most famous verses in the entire New Testament. Let's put the next slide up there. Joy in spite of an uncertain future. Uh, I, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. What is going on here? Why is he might be, be ashamed? Why does he need courage? So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Let, let me explain to you, um, to be clear, what he's doing in prison. He is in prison, in jail, in Rome, awaiting trial with Emperor Nero. Now, if you've watched the History Channel, or you remember back in high school studying Nero, this guy was a, was a nutcase, and he hated Christians. And as Paul sits in prison, he knows he's going to have two options. I'm going to be acquitted and released, or I'm going to be killed. Those are my options. So that's why he says, I don't, I don't know right at the end if I'm going to live or I'm going to die. That's kind of an uncertain future. Just like some of you have an uncertain future. I don't know if we're going to be able to keep the house. I, I don't know what's going on at work. I don't even know if I'm going to have a job in a couple months. I don't know if the cancer is going to come back. I don't know what's going on with my kids and the direction that they're going in. I don't know what's going on with my marriage. They said that they're going to leave and they want a divorce. And many of us sit here today with an uncertain future. You don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of us, because of we don't know what's happening, we allow the worry of what may or may not happen in the future to steal our joy. And Paul would say it doesn't have to be that way. In spite of difficult circumstances, in spite of unbearable people, in spite of an uncertain future, you can smile and learn to enjoy life. Now, I, th- I would think most of us here, is, I want that. The rest of the verses, he fleshes out how. How? Now, you have to put your thinking caps on this morning because he, he gets deep in a couple sections. But two or three things. If you've got your notes, this is what I especially want you to write down. The first principle is this. One way you experience joy and smile in life in, in the midst of trouble is to adjust your perspective and to embrace a gospel mindset. To em- adjust your perspective and to embrace a gospel mindset. This is especially when you want your Bibles because I'm not going to put the verses on the screen. It's too much here. Verse 12, let me show you what I'm talking about here. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that all that has happened to me, we've already talked about that. And then he adds this. It has actually served to advance the gospel. So, you know, being shipwrecked and the bites and the snake bitten and and the beaten and in prison, all that. It hasn't advanced my career, but it has advanced, he says, the gospel. Um, that word advance is a very colorful word. It was used of a particular kind of soldier in the Roman army that would go ahead of a soldiers. They would have machetes and, and they would kind of have bulldozer type equipment and they would clear the path. They would get rid of the, 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 the trees and get rid of the bushes and branches so that the chariots and all the soldiers could come through. He's saying, that's what I am doing. What I am doing, what has happened to me, has, has cleared the way so that the gospel can be shared. And, and right away, I want to go, how? And Paul's like, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. If you have an old translation uh, or an NASB, for example, it will say the Praetorian guard. It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard or Praetorian guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Here's what happened. Paul was considered to be such a high uh, security risk type of a prisoner that they put the Praetorian guard on him. They uh, 24 hours a day. He was literally 
chained to a guard. So there was four different guards, six-hour shifts that would come. The Praetorian Guard were the most elite soldiers in the Roman army. They were the personal guard, secret service, to Caesar. When they finished their military duty, they took high government positions. That was the Praetorian Guard. They were some of the most influential Romans in the city. And Paul is chained to one for one six-hour stretch. And Paul's thinking to himself, well, I came to Rome to preach. I got a captive audience. I might as well tell him my story. And that's what he did. Everywhere Paul went to, when he went to eat, the soldier would come with him. When he went to take a nap, the soldier would come with him. When he went to the bathroom, the soldier came with him. The soldier could not leave Paul. So he used his time to share his faith and to tell him about Jesus. Now, here's what history books tell us, which makes it very interesting. It's at this very moment in time in history that the Romans in the city of Rome become, begin to come to Jesus. And, and, and the high government officials become to come to Jesus. In fact, people in Caesar's family start to embrace Jesus Christ. And most historians point to this verse, verse 13, as one of the primary reasons. Because the Apostle Paul, for six hours at a stretch, is chained to someone who's going to be an influential leader in Rome. And they believe that it's through this kind of thing that the Roman government and many of the high officials in Rome came to Christ. That's why he says, what I've done has, has, has resulted in advancing the gospel. Here's what Paul wants you to do. If you want to learn to smile and have joy in life, even when you get kicked in the gut, you got to put on a new pair of glasses. you got to have a new perspective on problems. You've got to look at them differently. About a month ago, I had lunch with my cousin, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan grew up in this church back when we were in, in, in El Sobrani on Appian Way. We only had about 75 people in the church. And uh, he went to, down to uh, Los Angeles to, um, for, for school and just moved back for a job. And we were reminiscing as we were having, uh, having dinner um, about a, a situation that happened with his dad, my uncle. Uh, Rich happened to be the treasurer in the church at the time. This is the guy who writes the checks pays the bills. And at the end of one month, Sandy said to me, she just asked, by the way, did you get your paycheck this month? And I said, uh, what, what do you, I, I, I don't remember, I don't think Rich has given it to me. So I called Rich up, the treasurer, my uncle, and he said, no, I put it on your desk. I go, I, I don't remember getting it. And he said, I'm, I'm pretty certain I put it on your desk. I don't remember getting it. And uh, so we went back and forth, back and forth. He said, okay, I'll reissue it. So he reissued the check and I gave it to Sandy about three to four months later. I'm going through my briefcase and I unzip one of those zipper pockets that I never go in. Guess what I found in that zipper pocket? The check. And I'm like, shoot, this is not good. I don't like this. Right? I don't like being wrong. And uh, so then I had to, I had a, you know that about me, right? But suddenly I had a new perspective on the problem, didn't I? I was looking at the problem with a new pair of lenses. And I decided if I had a new perspective on the problem, I might as well give my Uncle Rich an opportunity to have a new perspective on the problem as well. So I came up with a plan with my cousin. What we did is I I called my cousin, Jonathan. I said, okay, here's what I need you to do. I'm going to give you this check. When he's not looking, I need you to go to the car. I need you to go to to the driver's seat mat. Right underneath the mat, I need you to put the check. But just so it's showing just a little bit. And then don't say anything. Just wait. About a week later, my uncle's driving. <laughs> he's driving. And all of a sudden, he's like, what is that? On? 
What is that under my mat? He pulls over, picks up the mat, finds the check. He's like, shoot, David was right. Now what am I going to do? What he did is he decided to come to my office and apologize. So for five minutes, he apologized. And I didn't stop him. This was very enjoyable. And I just listened, I just listened to him. After the five-minute apology, I, I told him what we had done. And suddenly he had a different perspective. And uh, I remember at the time, he didn't say some very Christian things to me. And I said, that's not how you talk to your pastor. He said, and he said, at this moment, you're not my pastor. You're my punk nephew. And um, so he had a different perspective as well. Here's my point. I do have a point. You got to put on a new pair of glasses when you're looking at your problems. Instead of uh, trying to figure out how does this affect me? How does how does it going to influence me? What is this going to do to my future? You have to have a new perspective. It has to be what Paul calls a gospel mindset. Life is not created by God to figure out how successful you can be. He creates life so to, to determine how successful his kingdom can be. That's why Paul says in verse 14, he adds this, because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters, in other words, other Christians, they've become confident in the Lord and and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And Paul says this, is your suffering going to be an opportunity for unbelievers to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? When you go to work and they know that life has kicked you in the teeth, but you're still smiling and you still have the joy of the Lord, don't you think that's going to want to make them interested in why? And then in verse 14, are you going to allow your suffering to create an opportunity to encourage other brothers and sisters in Christ around you? Many of you probably don't know this guy. Let's put his picture up on the screen. His name is E. Stanley Jones. Um, he is, he's called, he was a missionary, Methodist missionary to India. He's referred to in India as the Billy Graham of India. He had that kind of an impact on India. When he came back to the States, uh, near his retirement, he became advisor to President uh, Roosevelt. And he says this about suffering and problems. Let me show you. Let's put it up. Don't bear trouble. Don't bear trouble. Use it. In other words, don't just put up with it. Don't just endure your trouble. Take whatever happens to you, justice or injustice, good or bad, and make something out of it. Turn it into a testimony. For those who don't know Christ and those who already do know Christ, they will look at how you are handling trials and problems in life, and hopefully they will either be drawn to Jesus Christ or be encouraged in their faith. The point of life, verse 18 Amazing that he would say this in the context of everything he's gone through. What does all this matter? Everything I've gone through, what does it matter? He answers it. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Put your thinking cap on. Here's part of the problem with many of us. We spend too much time thinking about the therapy of suffering instead of the theology of suffering. Let me break this down for you. The therapy of suffering. What's therapy? Therapy is when you sit down with a professional and they give you insight and perspective on how to fix a problem or an issue you're going through. Therapy. It's a good thing for many of us. Therapy of suffering. But the theology of suffering is something completely different. The theology of suffering is trying to figure out what this book says about what you're going through. 
why you got kicked in the teeth. And the therapy of suffering asks completely different questions than the theology of suffering. And you, you have to realize that if you start with only trying to avoid suffering and first not figure out why you're suffering, it will mess you up. They ask completely different questions. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put it on the screen. The therapy of suffering, in other words, trying to resolve it, ask this question. How can I get over my suffering? How can I eliminate my suffering? How can I minimize my suffering? Isn't that what we want to do when things go bad, when things turn sour? Our first instinct is, how do I get over this? How do I fix this? Now, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you first have reflected on the theology of suffering. The theology of suffering is, what does God say about what I'm going through? How is God going to use what I'm going through? How is God going to grow his kingdom because of it? First, start with figuring out what does God say what you're going through? What is God going to do with your suffering? And the minute you understand that, I'm telling you, take my word for it. The therapy of suffering, how to process it is a completely different perspective. You get completely different answers. Step number one, do you want to laugh? Do you want to smile when the world says you really shouldn't be? Adjust your perspective. Have a gospel mindset about your life. The second thing he says is this. Instead of pursuing happiness, you need to choose to express joy. Right at the end of verse 18, he says, because of this, I will rejoice. And then right at the end, he says, yes, I will continue to rejoice in spite of problems, in spite of people, in spite of an uncertain future. I will continue to rejoice. He says, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ that has happened to me, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I don't have time for verse 19, but it's jam packed. It talks about the power that you and I receive to continue on in life. And he identifies two things, the prayer of God's people and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what keeps you going, should keep you going. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, I'm going to continue to rejoice. You know, the founding of our country was frankly a social experiment. It was a social experiment by our founding fathers because they believed there was a better way to live, a better way to live. And in our original documents called our Constitution, we're told that we have rights. We have the right to life. We have the right to liberty. You get that. That's guaranteed. As an American. But then it adds, that's guaranteed. And then you're also guaranteed the pursuit of happiness. Now the language assumes that you may get it, you may not get it. Maybe yes, maybe no. You're just given the opportunity to pursue it. Here's the problem. As Americans, many of us are consumed with the pursuit of happiness. The problem with that is that this book... God says, I want you to be consumed with the pursuit of joy. They're two completely different things. Now, when you look at someone that's happy and someone that's joyful, a lot of times you can't distinguish the, the, the two. Uh, from an outward perspective, it looks like they both have the same emotions, but, but they're different. There's a little bit of overlap, but they're different. If you see your study guide, there's a little chart you can look at, or we'll put it up on the screen here. Let me just break down with you real quickly the differences between being happy and being joyful. Uh, happiness is dependent on people, your spouse, your kids, 
your boss, your, your, your favorite sports team. It's depending on what they do. But joy is dependent on God. Happiness is found, is, is located in external things. Joy is located in internal things. It's what's going on on the inside of you, between your two ears and in your chest. Happiness is based upon what do I get? What do I get? Joy is based upon what can I give? The question that happiness asks is, will this make me feel good? The mantra of our society. If it feels good, do it. You ever seen that on a bumper sticker? If it feels good, do it. You know, I just want to ram into the back of them. The guy gets out. What are you doing? Thought it would feel good. You know, <laughs> joy asks the question, will it honor God? The focus of happiness is what's going on emotionally in my heart. The focus of joy is what's going on spiritually in my soul. The time frame of happiness is today, present. How is my stock portfolio doing now? How is my job doing now? How am I feeling health-wise now? How's my marriage and my kids doing now? Joy, the time frame, is future. And it's not even your future life, as in next year or 10 years from now. It could be eternity. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is, is you Happiness is out of your control. You, many of you walked in here today fairly happy. You, you more or less like your job. You're, you're getting paid decent. Um, your kids are more or less doing okay. You have a decent car to drive. Um, you're fairly happy. But something could happen tonight or tomorrow morning that changed that in a heartbeat. You could get a call from the doctor saying, you know that blood work we did two weeks ago? Really bad news. There could be an accident. There could be a fire. Anything could happen. It is out of your control. You cannot control happiness. Here's the key. With joy, you can make a choice. It's a choice that you and I make. But so many of us assume that our constitution is to be inerrant, God's word. And we pursue and live our lives for happiness. And God says, "Uh, it's not that I'm against that, but I really want you to live for joy. I don't know how long ago it was, but I only had two kids at the time. Jolie, I hadn't been born. Um, Sandy must have been gone for like a women's retreat at church. And I had the two kids for the weekend. So on a Friday night, you know, and I don't remember how old they are. They were about this tall. So like six or five or so they were really young. And I asked them, what do you guys want to do for dinner? Well, what does a five and six year old normally say they want to do for dinner? McDonald's. I said, okay, let's go to McDonald's. So we're in McDonald's. We're in line, right? And I'm trying to prep them and prime them. What do you, what do you guys want to eat? Well, what does a kid want at McDonald's? I want a happy meal. Okay. Okay. Joshua, what, 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 you know, we want the burger or the nuggets, nuggets, Jessica, what do you want? The burger or the nuggets, nuggets. And I don't know what possessed me to say this at this moment, but I thought to myself, well, you're only going to get three nuggets. She's only going to get three nuggets. Let's just get a 20-piece nugget, an extra-large fry, and that we'll call it a day. That'll be good. And Joshua's first comment was, what about the toy? <laughs> and I was like, don't worry about the toy. I mean, I, I see what you do with the toy. You love it for like about one hour, half a day, and then you lose it, forget about it, don't care about it. Don't worry about it. And Jessica's like, we really wanted a toy. And then at that very moment... I was like, don't worry about it. At that very moment, Joshua, <laughs> with his big eyes, he, he cries at the top of his lungs. 
We just want a happy meal. And the minute he said that, time stopped in the restaurant. Everybody that was eating looked to see who the cheapskate father was who wouldn't give their child an ounce of happiness. Everyone in line was looking at me and wanting to know my name so they could, you know, call in CPS, you know? I was like, hey, Phil Howard, Valley Bible, how you doing? No, I, I didn't do that part. What did I do? I caved in and I bought him a Happy Meal. I bought him a Happy Meal. Some of us, some of us, we get older, but we don't grow up. Because we do the same thing with our Heavenly Father. We whine and complain and say, God, I'll be okay if you get me a Happy Meal. If you get me a toy that I can drive for a couple years, if you get me a house that has a, a nicer backyard or another room, if you get me a cruise that I've really wanted to, just get me a happy meal. And God says, it's not that, it's not that I don't want that for you, but it's not my, my top priority for you. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because there's going to be someone that mishears what I'm saying. God isn't against that first column. He wants you to be happy. He's not against that at all. Just understand it's much lower on his priority list than you experiencing joy. Have you ever bumped into some like super Christian, super mature, and, and, and it's almost like they're upset at you because you're happy? Have you ever bumped into people like this? You're like, I'm so happy. My kid just got a full ride scholarship to college. We bought one raffle ticket at school. We ended up with a cruise around the Mediterranean. That the stock that I invested in is 10 times more than it was worth a year ago. You know, the Cubs won the World Series. The Raiders won the Super Bowl. I'm so happy. By the way, this is just an illustration, as you can tell. And this super Christian will go, quit being so happy. Supposed to be joyful in the Lord. Smiling so much. I don't quite get it. God isn't against you being happy. So don't mishear me there. He just is more interested in you experiencing joy. Let me give you the, the paradox. The paradox is that sadness, and oh, by the way, God isn't against sadness. That same super spiritual person will come up to someone who uh, has just had some incredibly bad news, who's going through an incredibly difficult situation, and they're sad. And, and, and it's almost like they'll beat them in the name of Jesus. Why are you so sad? You guys should have the joy of the Lord. Well, no, chill out a little bit. Relax. God is not against sadness. You know why I know? Read the book of Psalms. Half of them are written by sad followers of God. They're called the lament psalms. They're broken. Don't ignore what's going on in your life. No one's asking you to do that. Not me, not God, not your, your friends here at church. Here's the, here's the paradox. Is that happiness and sadness cannot coexist. They cannot live together. You cannot be both happy and sad at the same time. You can't do it. But here's the paradox. Happiness and joy can live together. You can, on the one hand, be honest and saying, you know what? Things are not going well in my life. But I do have the joy of the Lord. It's the weirdest thing. But they can both coexist at the same time. You want to experience joy in life? Adjust your perspective. 
Choose joy instead of happiness as your pursuit. And the last thing he says, let's wrap it up with this. Make Jesus your purpose for living. Make Jesus your purpose for living. I I actually misspoke earlier. This is the verse that you want to zero in on. This is one of the most famous verses in the entire New Testament. If there's one verse you want to memorize from chapter one, it's probably this sucker right here. He says this for me, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of the strangest verses at face value. He's sitting in prison, doesn't know what's going to happen to him. I'm either going to be acquitted and released. And if I do, I'm going to live for Christ. But if Nero takes my life, I get to, it's gain because I get to be with God. And he goes on in, in verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. In other words, I get to do more ministry. What, what shall I choose? I don't know. He's not saying that he actually has a choice. It's Nero's choice. He's just trying to, you know, if I had to pick, which I, do I want to stay and live or do I want to, you know, die and be with Jesus? Verse, verse um, tw- 23, if I am torn between the two. I desire to be uh, de- de- depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. If we actually believe that, life would be completely different. Being with Jesus is better by far. But so many of us keep thinking, well, you know, I, I, you know, I got that vacation coming up. I'm really doing well in my job. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to go to the wedding. I like Thanksgiving with the family. Christmas. I, I want to wait till my favorite team wins the, the big championship. I want to stay. And, and Paul says, no, you don't get this. It's better by far to be with Jesus. He's not saying you should look forward to death, but on the other side of death, it's better By far. Verse 23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. See, you should be able to say, I look forward to being with Jesus. But in verse 24, he's saying, but for your sake, it's probably better than I stay. I could say that as a dad. I could say that as a husband. As a Christian, if it's just me, an individual... It's better for me to be with Jesus by far. But for the sake of my kids, it's probably better that they grow up with a dad. For the sake of my wife, it's probably better that she not be a widow right now. You should and can be able to say both at the same time. Convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for the progress and joy in the faith so that through my being... With you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. You, you do know the end of the story, don't, don't you? Do you know what happened to Paul? He was beheaded by Nero. See, this is not me standing up here going, and, and everyone lived happily ever after. That's just not true. But I can say, and everyone lived joyfully ever after. This is not Paul just being a positive thinker. This is not a a, a motivational talk about if you just think the right things, then everything will work out. That's not what he's saying. His head was chopped off. His life was taken from him. And he's saying, nevertheless, I can be joyful. You know why? Because I made Jesus the purpose for my living. Let me ask you a question. If you were writing Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, what, what would your verse say? For me to live is blank. What would you say? For me to live is my career. 
I'm doing well. I'm getting promotions. I'm moving up in the organizational chart. But to die or retire, I guess it's over. They'll put someone else in my spot. For me, to live is my family. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? To, to, to love my wife, to take care of my kids. I love my family. For me to live is Christ and to die, well, I don't see him anymore. For me to live is my 401k retirement plan. I'm trying to build that sucker up so I can retire in style. For me to die, well, I guess I leave it to my kids. How would you fill in that verse? For me to live is my Niners, my Raiders, my Giants, my Cubs, my whatever. Some of us live for golf. We live for things that it's not that they're not important, but is that what you want your blank to say? For me to live is Christ. And that's the only answer that guarantees joy. It's the only answer. It's the only answer. How do I how do I do that, Dave? How do I make sure he's number one in my life? You, you got to make sure when you're reading books like any book of the Bible, you don't skip over those verses that don't seem to have anything in it. Like verse one. I read it very quickly last week and we skipped over it, but it gives the answer to how to make sure that Jesus is the purpose for your life. Let me share with you verse one. We're going to wrap it up with this. Put it up there. Philippians one, one, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The answer, how do I know, how do I know that I am living for Jesus Christ? It's if you're those two things. Let's talk them through real quick. He says, first of all, you have to be a servant of Christ Jesus. Literally, the Greek word there is slave. Slave. That doesn't sound very fun. By the way, the Bible does not in- endorse slavery, especially how it was practiced here in the United States. You should know in first century Christianity, however, that slavery was a part of that culture. And in, in, in the cases of some people embraced, if I had a lot of debt, if my family had a lot of debt, what I would do is I would give myself as a servant or slave to a master of an estate. He would take care of my debt, take care of me and my family from that day forward. But I was his servant. That's how it worked in those days. Financially, it was not a good society. And and here's what Paul is trying to explain to you. Based upon what Jesus did for you, based upon his his life and death on the cross for you, based upon his, his resurrection proving he was the Son of God, based upon his guarantee that you get eternity with God in heaven forever, the only thing that makes sense, the only thing that makes sense is your choice to be a servant, to be his slave. One of my favorite stories of Abraham Lincoln. If you, if you are interested in leadership, Abraham Lincoln is a great read. Incredible leader. And uh, the story is told, of course, we all know that uh, Abraham Lincoln was uh, against slavery and fought to abolish it. Um, the story is told years before, and he went to a slave auction. And he was just broken by what he saw, disturbed by what he saw, um, but as as young men and women were being auctioned off and purchased, something happened. He, he, he locked in on a young woman and there was something about who she was and her disposition that just. He decided, you know what, I'm going to buy her and then release her. And so he got into a bidding war with someone else who wanted this young woman 
And Abraham Lincoln way overpaid for what you should understand my terminology. And he was given the paper paperwork of ownership. He signed it, filled out a couple things and handed it to the young woman and said, you're free. She said, what do you mean I'm free? He says, you're free. What do you mean? Like free to say anything I want to say? Free to say anything you want to say. Free to do anything I want to do? Free to do anything you want to do. Free to go anywhere I want to go? Lincoln said, free to go anywhere you want to go. She responded, then I want to go with you. And that's the answer, and that's the parallel to Jesus. Based upon everything he's done for you, does anything else make sense? Does anything else make sense? You are a servant slash slave of God. And then he says to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, by the way, be clear. Some of you who grew up in the Catholic church, you know all about saints, right? So that someone lives a certain life, they do stuff at church, and then they, uh, they end up getting killed. And, and then someone comes along, they evaluate their life, and they make them a saint, right? Make a stained glass window out of them, something special, right? But if you grow up in kind of the church that maybe we are today, or you, you, you realize, well, wait, I, I can't live up to saint. Just based upon what I did this last week and some of the words I used, I'm clearly not a saint. What you need to understand about that word is it is not speaking of your behavior. It is speaking of your position, your position in Christ. That's why that word in is so important. It has nothing to do with your behavior. Reminds me of the story of two brothers who basically ran and controlled a town. They were incredibly wealthy. They were also very mean. They overcharged people in rent. They took advantage of people. They were not good people. And one day the older brother died. The younger brother went to the pastor, sat down with him, said, my brother died. Can you please do the funeral? He said, I'd be happy to do the funeral and help you that way. And the younger brother said, but I have one condition. At some point in time during the funeral service, I want you to say that my brother was a saint. And the pastor said, I can't do that. I, I just can't. You know he wasn't. He was, a, he was not a good man. And, and the younger brother pulled out his checkbook and he said, Pastor, if you can work it into the service, I'd be happy to donate $10,000 to your building program. The pastor was like, I, I think we could make that work. <laughs> service started. Casket is out there in front. Pastor starts out and he says, I want you to know that the man before us in the casket, this man was a horrible man. He was a despicable man. He was rotten to the core. But compared to his brother, this man was a saint. (laughs) That word has nothing to do with whether you're rotten to the core or not. It's your position in Jesus Christ. The minute you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are redeemed and transformed. You are part of the family. That's why you are referred to in these verses as brothers and sisters in Christ. You're part of the family. And that word, being called a saint, is meant to be a motivator. Live up to it. You leave this room here today with the tag on the back of you that says, Christian. That's how people know you at school. That's how people know you at home. That's how people know you at work. You got this tag on you that says, Christian, live up to it. Live up to it. I got one closing question for you. Why are you still alive? Why do you think God's let you live? 
most of us in our day and age, we die because we get a little older and our bodies start breaking down. That's just how life works. But we all have stories of friends we went to high school with or college with that were taken much, much earlier. Why are you still alive? Why does God let you live? Why are you still here? You want to know the answer? So you can be his servant and his saint. So you can leave here today and on behalf of Jesus Christ, obey him and tell the rest of the world when you get kicked in the gut, you can smile anyways. You can have joy anyways because of Jesus. To leave here today and live like a saint. To be changed, transformed, and sanctified through the Holy Spirit. You are not that old, rotten, horrible person you were before Jesus Christ. Don't live that way. Change. You are part of the family now. Live up to your name. Paul reminds us. And as best as we can tell, this was one of the last books he wrote. You know what? In spite of incredibly difficult circumstances, in spite of unbearable people in your life, in spite of an uncertain future, you can still smile. You can still have joy within you. Why? It's a one-word answer. Jesus. That's why. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to take a moment and I want you to just think and reflect. Why did God want you here today? What did he want you to hear? Maybe he wants you to put on a new pair of lenses. You've been looking at life strictly from the perspective of, does this benefit me? Maybe today God has reminded you life is not just about you. Most importantly, it's about God's kingdom. Maybe some of us were struck by this idea that we are living our life for Happy Meals. And eventually those toys wear out and we need another fix. Maybe today's your day and you say, you know what? Instead of living my life for happiness... I'm going to live my, house, my life pursuing joy. Finally, maybe today you're here and God is impressed upon your heart for me to live should be Christ. And it's not right now. It's my hobby. It's my family, it's my job, it's my finances, it's how I look, but it's not Christ. But today I want it to be. I want you to take a moment. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. What are you going to do differently today? Take a moment, lock that in your mind, and then tell God what you've learned today. And we'll close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, some of us came here today feeling like we've been kicked in the gut. Life's hit us hard. Financial problems, physical problems, problems at home, problems with work. We just feel like we've been kicked in the gut. What a great reminder this morning that Paul, chained, beaten, bitten by snakes, shipwrecked, can still say, in spite of all the garbage life throws at us, we can smile and we can rejoice because of Jesus Christ in our life. Father, we are thankful for that. Father, I pray that as we wrap up our study time, especially for those that find themselves this morning in a desert, they, they feel like they're hurting, they feel like they're thirsty, they feel like they have nowhere to turn, remind us that we can turn to you. Remind us of the promises that you've given us. Remind us of your son, Jesus Christ. Remind us of what Paul went through in those last months and still his attitude and perspective on life. We love you and we thank you that you have created within us the opportunity to smile. I can smile when the world says it doesn't make sense and I can do that because of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand and let's worship and reflect on what we've heard. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.